This podcast delivered by Australia Post. Whatever you're sending, they make it easy to pay and print your shipping labels from anywhere. And if you're in a metro area, they can come and pick up your parcels with My Post Business. Find out more and go to ozpost.com.au slash podcast. Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here. The show is back. And as usual, um, we're joined by David Scott, Global Markets and Economics Correspondent for Business Insider here. It's great to be back, Paul. And uh, what a couple of weeks we've had. It's uh, been a remarkable ride. Completely wild. It's been uh, huge, or huge, as um, the incoming President of the United States might say. Uh, and our guest uh, this week is uh, Scott Haslam, who is Chief uh, Economist at UBS in Australia. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to be here. Um, so, there have been huge moves in markets over the last couple of weeks um, since uh, the election of Donald Trump, which was not priced in uh, to markets at all. Um, so we're going to talk about that, obviously. We're going to have a look at the dom- Australian domestic outlook. Um, and Scott, you recently upgraded your uh, uh, projections for the outlook in the year ahead, so it'll be interesting to get your take on um, on how that's all likely, how you see this all playing out. Uh, we'll talk about commodities, um, big moves in oil, um, and in Australia's key exports, coal and iron ore. Um, and um, Dave, you write about iron ore every day. It's just been astonishing, hasn't it? It has been astonishing. That's one way to describe it. Yeah. There's another another few words I could probably use to describe it, which may be a bit more colourful, but yes, it's uh, been very, very remarkable. Uh, so we'll get to that. And also, um, uh, Scott is involved in some really interesting charity work uh, in Kenya and Rwanda, um, and um, it'll be interesting to hear about that because... Um, uh, you know, uh, interesting pursuits, um, and uh, it's great to see you know people in the, the economics and finance community um, applying their talents uh, to uh, projects for uh, for good around the world. Uh, if we have time, we'll get to the cricket, but that'll be short, a little bit like an Australian tech test innings. Okay, um, so let's talk about the biggest thing that's happened uh, in economics, and arguably one of the biggest things that um, that'll happen in our lifetimes, and that's Donald Trump being elected president of the United States. Have been huge moves. U.S. stocks have hit new all-time highs. Bonds around the world have been selling off. Yields rising everywhere. Even the 10-year Japanese government bond went slightly positive for a very short period of time. Um, and this is basically because Trump's policies are expected to be positive, uh, at least in the short term, for the U.S. economy. And they're also expected to be inflationary to some degree. Um, so Ray Dalio uh, is somebody who will be familiar to many of our listeners. He's head of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge funds, hedge, world's largest hedge fund. He thinks that what we're witnessing is a reversal that may last a decade. He says we're potentially looking at a profound president-led ideological shift that is of a magnitude analogous to Ronald Reagan's shift to the right. He says we're going to see um, decreasing globalization, free trade, um, aggressively stimulative fiscal policies, and stronger U.S. growth. Scott, when you look at what's happened... Um, on global markets over recent weeks. What have been the key themes um, as you see it? Well, I think one of the, 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 the key things the market's sort of trying to get its head around is, um, you know, what happened to my uh, lower for longer um, thesis? Um, and I think uh, the market has been trading bonds aggressively for a long time now, looking for ever lower yields. And we actually got to a point in June where 40% of the global bond market uh, was yielding negative. 
And so what we've seen, and I know that, that, the, that the election of uh, Donald Trump was pretty important in terms of setting those trends about, but if we go back to June, the world did seem to be steadying, commodity prices were starting to look a little bit better back there, and I think all of those sort of factors were starting to see bond yields drift higher. And in fact, bond US Treasuries were 135 back in, in June. They were 175, 180 before the Trump election. Uh, so we were already starting to see that, that reflation trade coming through. And I think one of the big things we've seen is the markets responded to a whole lot of central banks that have shifted from standing up and telling the market, we'll do whatever it takes as far as easing monetary policy and buying bonds. And over the course of this year, because the economic data's got a bit better, oil steadied and drifted up a little bit, um, and that the world's felt a little bit better, central bankers have shifted from going, we'll do whatever it takes, to we've given you all we've got. And that, that positioning shift means you can't really trade bonds forever believing there was more stimulus. And so bond yields have had been drifting up in an environment of drifting up in inflation. Europe's clearly doing better than people thought. UK did better post the Brexit vote than, than people thought. Um, so it was all starting to, to bubble up before the Trump election. And what the Trump election did is force the market to look at the fiscal policy, the fiscal stimulus, which is unfunded, and therefore you, you, you're driving growth, equities like that, because your earnings are going to go up. Uh, more bonds, unfunded yields have gone up as well. So it's a huge move. Um, bonds really have been getting smoked. I mean, this week, uh, again, like the, uh, the Australian 10-year um, uh, government bond is now pushing up like 2.8%, that kind of level. Um, and it feels like only weeks ago it was two, um, maybe a little bit lower for a little while, um, started creeping up again. Um, I think there was one week where uh, well over a trillion dollars, US dollars in value, um, was, came out of the, the bond market globally. Um, and the interesting thing is here that getting a rotation into US equities in particular, um, Dow all-time highs, yep. um, NASDAQ same, isn't it uh, is extraordinary because for the last year or so, people have been talking about valuations being stretched. Yes. Um, well, I think so in a happened? very low yield environment uh, where we've been, um, all asset classes looked expensive. And so the issue going forward is, okay, so bonds look extremely expensive, uh, but the market's still happy to buy equities. And I suspect that's because uh, one aspect of the Trump um, election victory uh, is around the additional fiscal spending and the tax cuts that comes with that, which could actually create a boost to earnings. And so you've got a situation where equities on a PE valuation globally look about fair, um, but they could look um, cheaper if the growth improved and, and, and tax changes caused a boost to earnings. And of course, uh, we've got China as well, I think, as part of this story too. So obviously, we don't know what's going to happen in the Trump administration with China. But China, David, has been looking okay um, this year. You know, the, the story continues that China's long slowdown appears to have stopped. And we're seeing Chinese GDP um, settling down around 65 uh, to 7%. 
it's not exactly right. It's um, you maybe they lay the uh, the foundation for Trump's policies on uh, on some aspects by uh, no fiscal pump priming their economy. They uh, injected an incredible amount of money into the economy, particularly in the first half of this year, and that certainly stabilised things. Uh, we discussed uh, commodity prices, a big part of the reason why commodity prices have been rising. The biggest end user in the world is China. Their economy is stabilising. It's starting to go and strengthen. The signs that the uh, the handover from the public-led uh, infrastructure spend at the start of the year is now starting to infiltrate into the private sectors as well. So it's uh, it's looking okay, excluding the risks from the, the financial risks that have come from this latest round of uh, of stimulus that's been applied and, and debt essentially. So what has been you know looking around the, the um, what have been the standout themes for you looking around what's happened uh, on global markets in um, since the, the the second Tuesday in November. Oh, just well. Initially, it was just the uh, the the scale of the reversal that we saw. Obviously, uh, on November nine, which was the uh, the election date in the US, but it was when we were watching it live here. There was uh, S and P futures were limit down five percent. Uh, US Treasuries are absolutely you know soaring, uh, and then there started to go and be a reversal. Then uh, when Trump gave his very conciliatory uh, speech. Um, that calmed a lot of nerves and everything went ballistic and it's been ever since the same moves have been applied. Treasuries have been sold off, uh, US equities have been rallying. The key thing now I'm seeing is, uh, is a lot of rotation, not just from bond markets, US treasuries into US stocks, but also a bit of uh, emerging markets, rotation out of uh, those bond markets, out of those equity markets and back into the US. So in some ways, maybe Scott, it was, you know, I think as you mentioned, like um, the pump was primed a little bit. There was a bit of this conversation starting to happen, happen yeah. globally about maybe governments need to get their act together and think about fiscal measures. Um, and because the conversation about monetary policy running its, running it, the, the, its course had been going for a couple of years. Yeah. So the, the pump was primed and the, the Trump result, I suppose, maybe just turned on the tap. Well, I think you were seeing around the G20 meeting, there was this conversation amongst uh, the G20 around uh, the importance or the potential for some sort of big bang fiscal uh, stimulus. Now, of course, the market ignored that because we all know that, that um, there's plenty of debt out there already uh, on government balance sheets. And so the market was fairly sceptical, uh, as, I, as I was, around the potential for a, a big bang fiscal stimulus. But what I do think has been going on in the background is a bit of a piecemeal fiscal stimulus. So you've seen a bit of easing of fiscal policy in some of the Asian countries. Uh, the idea that Japan was evolving from monetary to, to fiscal policy. Uh, Australia's net fiscal stimulus now with all the state governments doing all the infrastructure and the roads. So I think, yes, the, the Trump victory did, did sort of really catalyse that, that potential for fiscal policy around the world uh, to be a bit more supportive in an environment that you know, there did appear to be diminishing returns or, or, or lack of ongoing benefit from central banks continuing to print money. I think it's, it's going to be interesting, like, you know, he, um, Trump during the week was saying the first, on his first day in office um, in January, one of the first things he's going to do is pull the plug on the TPP. Um, in terms of other economic policy, we just genuinely don't know right now. Uh, we, we haven't got a Treasury Secretary pick. There's been talk about Jamie Dimon, a um, couple of other Wall Streeters. Uh, so, you know, w w but we'll see. Um, so it's going to be a fascinating uh, few months ahead. I think it's going to be incredibly fascinating, particularly uh, if you've been, anyone who's been paying attention to the U.S. economic data recently. It has been becoming incredibly strong. There is, to me, there's a, there's a clear upswing there, even before any of these uh, proposed fiscal stimulus measures that are introduced by Trump. 
And I just wonder, A, what's the unemployment rate now in the United States? It's getting very low. 4.9, so it's just uh, just shy of the 5% mark. And, and you know, we are seeing around the world, you know, you look at the European PMIs, they're now at 11-month highs. Uh, the US economy is doing pretty well. Um, and I think one of the big issues is, is simply we've been focused on this idea of the, the new lower normal, uh, and it's quite plausible uh, that the, the new lower normal is uh, lower than what, what we've been used to, but higher than where we've been. And that's what the market's really having to, to, to figure out is what is this new lower normal? And it's quite possible that this will see the markets continue, yields continue to rise for a little bit longer. Certainly a whole lot of uh, repricing. There is one risk um, event coming up, December 4. Um, Italy votes on um, some banking reforms. Um, the Prime Minister says he will resign if it's not passed. Uh, so how much is this on your radar, Scott, as a, as a risk event? These things are significantly on our radar. And this is within the context that the world has a lot more geopolitical uh, events and risks that we, we think a lot about now. And I don't think economists have been particularly good at thinking about those things uh, because they're often fairly binary uh, in, in outcome and it's, it's hard for economists to work in binary outcomes. Um, so they haven't tended to be paid too much attention to. But there is definitely, uh, it's hard to, to ignore this, uh, the anti-globalisation, the, the social disillusionment around the world, the income inequality and the impact that they're having now is much greater on markets and the potential uh, for events to come out different to what the market thinks. So we've got, the, as you, as you mentioned, the December 4 uh, Italian referendum. We have French elections next year. Uh, we have a lot of geopolitical events um, which have the potential to have a, a much greater impact on markets. So yes, we think a lot about, about these events now in terms of our, our, our outlook. Because there's um, certain assumptions priced into also, particularly on the equity side, uh, and obviously bonds too, but um, that basically free trade, more open borders, um, companies being able to uh, move goods around uh, easily um, and at low cost. And there's question marks now starting to uh, pop up over whether that will continue to be the case in all sorts of markets as you look at them on a, on a, like a nation by nation basis. Mm, well, I think you can, you could argue, you could argue that um, globalization has peaked, uh, international trade uh, has peaked. How it unfolds from here will depend a lot on policy. There's a lot of research that shows international trade that most of the slowdown in international trade is around the, the weak capex environment, that businesses just don't want to invest. And were that to change, um, then maybe trade would re-accelerate it. But definitely uh, this anti-trade feeling uh, does lean itself again towards more isolationist policy, more domestic fiscal spending, uh, and theoretically that means higher interest rates. Um, let's look at Australia now. The research that comes from, from you, Scott, and your team uh, at UBS, um, uh, extremely high quality and terrific charts as well. Um, just quickly, the, the process with putting those things together, it, it's usually pretty fast, you guys. Um, you know, often within an hour or two of um, the data being out. Um, so what do those, those busy data days look like in, in the office? Just curious. Well, we've 
sort of streamlined our notes over the last few years from you know multiple pages down to pretty much a page of text and a page of charts and tables. So they're in a fairly set format. Um, so we come in every, on a day of busy data and we think about what's coming out. We look at the charts. We, th we, we consider whether they're still capturing the big issues uh, that that data is likely to have um, and think about that. And when the data comes out, we do tend to only move one chart around. So we tend to have some set charts there um, and that tends to focus our mind on what we're doing, which allows us to, to get it out pretty quickly. So you, you, you had this a very, very interesting um, uh, note on just the domestic outlook for Australia, um, uh, I think it was um, last week, um, November 18, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to quote from it um, because it's, um, uh, you know, it, it touches on some of the things that you know, we've, we've just been talking about in terms of global outlook, um, but specifically for Australia, um, you said, look, for the pa past few years, discussions about Australia's outlook have been focused on the headwinds significantly impacting the economy. In particular, the negative income shock from falling commodity prices, the drag from falling capex post the resources boom, as well as the fiscal contraction as the federal government returns to surplus. Now, I don't think you'll find much disagreement with that. Nice and neat and precise. And here's the kicker. From the UBS team, Australia's growth is forecast to strengthen further to 3% year-on-year in 2017 after 2.9% 2 in 2016 before easing to 2.8% in 2018. More materially, the pace of year-on-year -year growth accelerates to 3.5%, which is a, starting to become a big number through 2017, a full 1 percentage point faster than its forecast exit rate, 2.6% for 2016. Um, and then 2018, you have a bit of a retracement. So, um, pretty uh, optimistic uh, in the in the medium term. Um, it's a clear forecast that there'll be a, a, a bit of a deceleration in uh, in 2018. Do you want to um, maybe go through your rationale for um, for that call? Okay. So what we're looking for over the back half of this year, 2016, uh, is it does look like the economy has lost a little bit of momentum. Uh, into the third quarter and, and in the run-up to Christmas. So it's been a soft quarter of construction and retail seems to pull back a little bit. So there's a little bit of softening from a pretty punchy 3.3% into the middle of this year. So growth's been doing pretty well. Um, what we're looking for through next year is, is this idea of fading headwinds. And it's all been about uh, the negative income recession, the, uh, the income shock, um, and then it's been about fiscal consolidation and there's been a mining downdraft. And we'd, we'd argue that two of those three are done and one of them's not that far away. So if we look at the commodity prices, we can, we can argue about whether coke and coal should be over $300. Um, but it's, it used to be 70. Uh, and so as much as we think commodities probably drift a little bit lower from here, the big downdraft is finished. I mean, we were, we were selling iron ore for $200 a tonne. Whether it's 40, 50 or 60, I'm not sure that matters as much to the economy as it matters to some of the companies in that space. So the commodity drag is over uh, in terms of the fiscal consolidation. Although the Commonwealth still causing us to, to lose about half a percent a year, because we've got New South Wales and Victoria announcing some really strong infrastructure spending around roads and transport, that more than offsets 
the, the Commonwealth's consolidation. So we're actually net positive on fiscal policy. So that's two of the three big headwinds are gone. And the third one is on mining capex. The last big LNG project really drops out of the numbers somewhere in the middle of next year. So, you know, Chris Kent uh, a couple of nights ago mentioned that they thought, which is consistent with our view, we're kind of 80% through the mining downdraft. So that's a big change when you think about the conversation. It's always been about headwinds. Now we're actually thinking about mild tailwinds from some of these things. That's really going to change the, I think, the dynamic of the economy uh, through the course of next year. Dave, it's been really um, uh, extraordinary how um, flexible. I mean, given that the, there was a lot of people thought that you needed an Australian dollar around about seventy cents uh, to make this transition happen smoothly, um, but um, it's been high seventies for a while. It's now back to 74, 73, um, but uh, it was higher than a lot of people were forecasting, um, but yet the economy still managed to ride it out and, um, and uh, money kept moving. Oh, obviously, and you know, I think uh, going back to what I was talking about earlier, the, the Chinese economy this year, a lot of the factors behind what happened there has obviously influenced us. So, you know, where China's economy goes, Australia will almost inevitably follow, given the, uh, the, the strong economic ties between the two countries. Um, it doesn't really surprise me. Uh, you know, you're also seeing the impact from tourism and education, uh, particularly from the Chinese. Uh, yet again, uh, we've seen you know, record tourism numbers coming through, um, all with the, the slightly lower Aussie dollar, although not against the UN. It's not anymore. Obviously, it's, uh, it's been weakening. But you put all those things in unison, higher commodity prices, uh, Australia's uh, tourism, uh, education sector is doing well. It doesn't really surprise me that the Australian economy is performing this well. Then you throw in, of course, the, uh, the other external factor which we've had is the trade. Uh, LNG exports are starting to ramp up. Uh, that's all adding to net GDP, uh, which is also helping the economy and helping the, the actual GDP figures be, uh, be quite high and, and above what you'd say is now the normal trend. So Scott Morrison, the Federal Treasurer, uh, who's been a guest um, on the show, he was on uh, with us um, a, a few weeks back, um, but he was talking during the week about Australia's challenge being around incomes, so around income growth. Um, and uh, Scott, you see now, um, just I think from your projections, you're seeing a big spike in nominal uh, GDP growth, which is effectively income growth. Um, for Australia next year, 5.5%, I think you're forecasting, which is the fastest since uh, 2011. Mm -hmm. And you point out that uh, this is a positive for fiscal trends yeah. and corporate profits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you look at the, you know, economists like to talk about nominal GDP growth, um, that's fairly closely aligned with um, income, cash flow in the economy. And so if you, you look at corporate uh, profits or corporate earnings, they tend to correlate quite nicely with nominal GDP. And so again, we're back to this issue of the last few years, negative income shocks, negative income recessions, been a very difficult time in the, in the earnings environment for corporates. Now going forward, we're arguing that could change. But to, to Scott Morrison's point, one of the aspects of our view, which is a little bit interesting relative to the past, is that when you normally get this acceleration in real growth, you get that acceleration in income and inflation that comes with it. 
And we would argue that uh, notwithstanding the reflationary story going on in the world, Australia has some pretty significant localised disinflationary issues in regard to what I would say the demise of some of the com competitive, or not less competitive sectors in Australia. Um, and also wages. Wage growth used to be four. If you, if you weren't getting 4% year-on-year wage growth, uh, it was a disaster. So now we're all... Marching in the streets, yeah. Right. Now we're all excited if we get two. Yeah. Um, so pretty much every single sector in Australia, wage growth has come down. So we're, we're pushing a view that's pretty positive on growth, but is one where we think the inflationary pressures really aren't there because incomes probably are, unfortunately, going to remain pretty soggy. I think. So what does this mean for um, the RBA then um, when it looks at um, the cash rate? Well, I think the RBA could be on hold for an extended period. Now, the market's got used to the RBA being quite a nimble uh, central bank. And uh, uh, when you talk to international investors and you say, I th look, I think the RBA is going to be on hold for two years, they sort of yawn and, and think, well, so what? But you know, the RBA, the average turnaround time from the last cut to the first hike for the RBA's 8.5 months. And in the last two cycles, one of them was five months and the other one was six months. So the RBA's been fairly nimble. I'd argue that RBA is no longer with us. And this time the RBA is going to be quite uh, patient. Uh, as they are being patient on the downside, I think they will be patient on the upside. Uh, and we could see the RBA in an environment where growth's okay, um, but inflation's quite low. Uh, I suspect the RBA could be on hold well into the middle of 2018. And then there's obviously the impact on federal budget bottom line. Um, we've got the um, MAIFO coming up um, and uh, that's going to be interesting. I think um, on the show a few weeks back when um, when iron ore was getting up through, you know, holding steady through the sort of $60 uh, range, um, I think I said um, that you know, um, I expected a nice little positive um, surprise. Um, Santa coming down uh, the chimney early um, into uh, Treasury um, mm -hmm. with a little bit of extra cash. Um, uh, Morrison has been managing some expectations lately, saying maybe it's actually going to deteriorate a little bit, but you see then over maybe the next 18 months or so an improvement. Yeah, I find it difficult to believe that if we were to hold these whole commodity prices, you know, iron ore comes back to maybe you know, mid-50s mid towards sort of 60 or, or coal comes back to the commodity price environment, that we're not going to see a reasonable improvement in the medium-term outlook for the budget. Notwithstanding that obviously we've got issues in the wage growth, it is lower than the budget was anticipating, but on today's commodity prices, if you look at the sensitivity of the budget, uh, it, it should be a significant contribution to the budget over a number of years. Because obviously uh, one of the things the government doesn't want to do is to uh, announce an earlier timing for a surplus and find that uh, things have changed. That's never happened before? Uh, I, I suspect it has happened uh, <laughs> not, not so recently, um, but uh, yes, it, it can happen. So I think there's definitely some, some management going on. Yeah, I, I think you know, there's a fair, fair deal of expectation management and I think you know, it's a reminder of, you know, how much uh, in terms of government revenue um, taxes um, actually comes from, is constituted from income taxes. Um, so people's pay. Um, when wages growth is low, that's really when the budget struggles unless you introduce taxes elsewhere. 
Yes, and I think one of the other issues is, as we've learnt, uh, it's very hard to introduce um, good structural economic policy unless you can pay off the loser. Uh, it's been very hard to, to do good policy. And so uh, making sure that there's some, uh, some uh, money in the budget over time to allow that good structural policy to come through is, is sensible, sensible politics. That's right. Um, so, Dave, um, on this stuff, we, a big part of this story is, um, just going back to the commodities, a big part of this has been um, the iron ore, of course, but coke and coal. Um, people are just astonished. Um, what, what are we now, 300 plus dollars? Yeah, I think it's up. I think it's 320% up or something on those. I've looked uh, from the lows, so it's uh, an incredible rally. But um, I think based off uh, very fundamental factors as well, they've, uh, they've had many supply disruptions both within China and uh, in, in seaborne uh, seaborn markets. Uh, China's been ramping up their fiscal spending, uh, encouraging uh, a lot of construction and infrastructure spend uh, by the government. Uh, you put those two factors together, then uh, there's been a supply shortage. Um, China's decision to go and reduce mine output uh, in coal, coal mines is, uh, has been another contributing factor. So it doesn't really surprise me. I don't think it's going to last at these levels. Certainly, uh, I think uh, if it does, you know, we will be talking about budget uh, surpluses beyond uh, in, the, in the next uh, next few fiscal years rather than, uh, than what we're seeing at the moment. But it has been a remarkable run. And what about uh, iron ore? Um, just wild moves uh, recently. It feels like um, every day moves with 3 and 4%. Um, what do you what do you think? Oh, that's the norm nowadays. Particularly, uh, it's, a lot of it's been driven by what's happening uh, in Chinese, uh, you know, steel markets. Uh, steel prices have, uh, have tended to lead. Uh, you've also got uh, coke and coal prices have, uh, have gone bananas. Uh, and you put uh, that in the context with iron ore. There's been uh, a surprising move uh, in some aspects, but I think that. Beyond the fundamentals, which I believe kicked off the rally in all these bulk commodity contracts, I think there's definitely signs that there's a lot of speculation back in these markets now. Every time Chinese policymakers and regulators say, uh, we're going to go and increase margins or impose uh, trading limits, there's always a huge dropout, and that's all that speculative behaviour in the marketplace. Uh, but China's a fairly closed capital economy. They've got a lot of money looking for a home. Properties run very expensive. Uh, stocks... A lot of people remember what happened last year, and so I think there's more than a few investors who are now dabbling in the uh, commodity futures market. It's, it's um, absolutely fascinating. Okay, so you're listening to the Devils of Details podcast from Business Insider Australia, and our guest is uh, Scott Haslam, who's Chief Economist at uh, UBS in Australia. Um, now, I was very lucky um, a few years ago after we got married, um, to, we went on our honeymoon to Kenya. We did the safari thing, and it was fantastic. Beautiful. If uh, you ever get a chance, it's absolute bucket list uh, stuff. Uh, it's completely fascinating um, just being around all of the, um, the wildlife and seeing the, the planes and all that kind of stuff. So I got to see um, the good part. Um, uh, but it is very um, apparent, like when you arrive there, um, you know, and uh, you're in Nairobi and, um, and uh, kicking around there before you head off for your uh, uh, trip out in the planes. Um, uh, you know, it's very uh, apparent that there's a big gap, big gaps in living standards. Um, you know, um, so um, Scott, you're involved with a charity that operates in that part of the world, um, Hope Global. Do you want to tell, tell us a bit about their work? Yes, yeah, so Hope Global is a is a charity 
Uh, it's an Australian-based, not-for-profit not uh, charity uh, started by good friends of mine, Mark and Darlene Czech. And it's basically uh, a charity that works in countries uh, where there's war, poverty or genocide. And so we have a particular focus in Rwanda uh, following the 1994 genocide there. Uh, and the, the focus of the charity, we have a number of uh, orphanages, uh, build homes for orphans and widows uh, of the genocide. Uh, and then we've also got a very strong education, teach the teacher focus, uh, where we're sending four or five teams of Australian teachers uh, into teach the teachers, early childhood, uh, up to primary and beyond, not only in Rwanda, but in, in, in Kenya, Cambodia uh, as well. And um, do you go and visit the projects? I've been to Rwanda a couple of times, so yes, uh, talking to government, looking at our projects, um, scouting out new projects. Uh, so being on the board, we do get the opportunity to go and, and have a look and, and assess uh, how those projects are going. How do you find dealing with um, government officials there? Um, fantastic. There, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a, Kagami has been a, a very uh, powerful force uh, in Rwanda in terms of coordination and uh, we've obviously had a, a fair amount of time talking to the government around education and helping them uh, think about their curriculum. So we've done a fair amount of work in, in helping them around writing that curriculum and, and things like that. So it's been, um, it's been a great journey and one of the things where we're very excited about going forward is we uh, started a new project where we're actually building a training centre um, in, in Kigali uh, which will be a, a hub uh, where we can send our teams, where we can do more um, work, more development aid from uh, and employ some Rwandans uh, and it'll also give us a, a base where we can engage the government uh, even more. It's uh, so certainly uh, really interesting and good on you for, um, you know, um, uh, like I said, applying your talents um, uh, and efforts uh, to something um, that's um, obviously, uh, you know, work that uh, it really needed um, in certain uh, parts of the world. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to wrap up quickly, look at the sport. Um, I can't let the show pass without mentioning the rugby. Um, so... Um, Are you, you going to talk about Ireland beating the All Blacks? Is that, is that what yes, you're... <laughs> um, there's, there's, there's a follow-up. Well, for the first time in 111 years, which is um, just uh, magnificent. I watched it with my little boy um, on the couch, both of us in our little Ireland jerseys. Um, uh, so that was fantastic. Um, now uh, Ireland are also playing um, the Wallabies. Uh, so I think you know, we'll certainly be talking a little bit about that um, uh, in the, over the coming weeks. Um, particularly if Ireland win, um, I, I might insert a, a special rugby segment. Um, don't worry, if Australia wins, I'll be inserting the, uh, the Wallaby segment. <laughs> don't, don't you worry about that. <laughs> um, okay, uh, the other thing that's been happening has been the cricket. Um, or not happening. Um, so um, Australia getting skittled. Um, Scott, you enjoy watching the cricket, or maybe you haven't uh, too much lately. Um, what, have you, what do you think? Well, I'm, I'm a bit of a cricket tragic, so I think cricket's one of the few sports I, I watch, whether we're doing well or doing poorly. Um, so I have been watching. Um, it, is, it is pretty tough, particularly on uh, home soil, uh, to be getting beaten. So uh, convincingly. So, uh, look, um, it's disappointing, but you know these these times come, and and it's great to see the team being refreshed. And I think we will hopefully see some great young talent, and hopefully they'll get a good opportunity over the course of the entire summer 
to, to do well. And I guess we have to accept that, uh, given it's a bit of a, a rebirthing of some parts of the team, that um, you have to sow some, sow some seeds and maybe the outcomes won't be this great this, this summer, but hopefully we'll be building for the future and regain our uh, preeminent uh, entitled position is uh, number one. <laughs> That's right. Well, look, they're at least doing something, Scotty, right? They, you know, because I think for a while there's been this sort of fairly um, humdrum performances uh, from from the Australian team, but at least now that they're, they're doing something, there's some moves. Oh, I think so, and it's great. Like Steve Smith's a young captain, and I think it's fantastic that now he's been given a team who are full of youngsters as well. And uh, as Scott says, uh, we've. Uh, We've got this period now where we're probably not going to go and perform that well. Uh, there's a lot of inexperience in the team, and it's going to be left a lot on the shoulders of Steve Smith and uh, and Dave Warner to go and reassure that uh, that Banny lineup. Uh, but I'm I'm all for it. I'm all for the changes. The one thing I'd like to say about the cricket team, particularly in Australia, is that I just I think that they've lost that hardness about them. Uh, the players used to be have a bit of a larrikin streak to them. But it's become all this very carefully curated team now. Sports science, you can't do this, you can't do that. Bowlers uh, being, you know, yeah, um, as, strict I, rules around how much you can bowl. Yeah, exactly right. Like over the years, like, there's, I've seen a correlation between how sometimes we perform compared to the more technology you're going to introduce into the game and particularly into the maintenance of the players. That there seems to be a correlation with people getting breaking down bad test performances, at some point I think that they've just got to go and get out there and actually practice and practice and practice and go to like places like India, learn to play spin, go to uh, England, learn how to face the jeep ball that's going to be swinging around because that's the thing I think is going to be holding us back whenever we go and tour overseas. Yeah, that's right. The technology won't, won't uh, give you a better in-swinger, right? So. No. Like, you know, facing 50, or bowling 50 balls in the net or facing 50 balls in the net, I mean, told, I know you've, you can't get overworked now, like, you know, you'll, you'll burn out. At some point, sometimes you're just going to put in the hard yards and actually going to do it. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, we have some uh, great guests lined up um, over the coming weeks as we head into Christmas. Um, but we've been joined on this, uh, this uh, episode by uh, Scott Haslam, who's Chief Economist at uh, UBS in Australia. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm Paul Colgan. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're all um, on Twitter um, and you can find us on iTunes where you can rate us and leave us a review. We'll see you next time. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.